0: I'm Sean Graham, and what's oldest news this week is immigration. Since Europeans first arrived in what is now Canada, immigration has been a key tenant of the colonial nation-state and its development, but the opportunity to come to the land that now makes up Canada was not equal to all individuals. At times, there were limitations on people who could come from Eastern Europe, from the Middle East, from Africa, from the Caribbean, South America, and certainly from Asia as well. And this week, we want to look at one such story and how an individual sought to overcome the discriminatory restrictions on immigration. And that is told by Norm Raven in Who Gets In, an immigration story. This is a wonderful book where Norm looks at his maternal grandfather's effort to get into Canada. He was a Jewish immigrant who had come from Poland and left his family and came to Canada at a time when Jewish immigration was extremely difficult. Famously, there is the None Is Too Many, Irvin Abella book which profiles the federal government's policy towards Jewish immigration with the sentiment at the time being expressed by some cabinet ministers that none is too many for Jewish immigrants. And it's in that environment that Norm traces his maternal grandfather's journey to Canada, his journey across the country, eventually living in the prairies for a time and the challenges that came along with that, not least of which was having to lie about having a wife and a child back in Europe and the challenge of being alone, separated from his family, while also lying to federal officials in order to get into the country. And then the struggle that he had to bring his family to Canada in the face of those discriminatory laws and the community that was built up around that, the support systems that were in place. Norm gets into a lot of that in the book. It's a really interesting exploration that not only touches on the nature of immigration, who got to be included within the understanding of the term Canadian at the time, while at the same time exploring a very personal tale for him And his family. His grandfather really comes across as an interesting and uh, brave and uh, remarkable individual who is a wonderful window into a very significant moment within the history of immigration policy in Canada. So I had the opportunity to talk to Norm a couple weeks ago. Really enjoyed that discussion. Think you will as well. So here is my chat with Norm Raven. All right, and Norm Raven joins me now from Montreal. Norm, how are you today?
1: Sean, hi. Everything's good, thanks.
0: Terrific. Uh, Very excited to chat with you today about who gets in an immigration story. So let's get right into it and talk about uh, Yehuda, Yosef Eisenstein, who is really the center of this book. And before we get into some of the specifics about him, how did you come across his story? Like, how did you first learn about his experience in Canada?
1: So as uh, as he was my mom's dad, we, we heard some things about it. And it was a kind of a family story that had a certain life, uh, which I, I thought I understood. But th- the reality was, as I learned, as I researched the book, I, d- I didn't know the family story. And in my writing career, I pursued family stories in different ways, sometimes in fiction this is a kind of a hybrid or kind of an unusual kind of a memoir slash uh, historical book. And this is a family story I've left till the last. I can't exactly tell you why. Uh, maybe I thought I knew it. Um, we do have a kind of a pattern of knowledge about immigration in Canada Via one book, none is too many, which many of your listeners will probably know of. And I I think it was kind of in my way because my period is actually earlier than that book's period. And I'm under different political leaders and the whole picture is kind of different. So I think the problem over a long period of time was uh, I didn't know if there was a story there. I hadn't pursued it properly. Um, And then the last thing that I'd mention is that for the longest time, my grandfather was not really findable in archives. So I just had this stuff, this family lore, but then it may have been the internet era becoming so much more, you know, the the presence of digitalized materials, that a couple of really dramatic and good immigration files showed up related to his activities in the early 30s. So then for the first time, I actually had some serious, you know, research materials to sort of start from. But that was a that was more than a decade ago that I I covered those and it was a a long process moving out of that mm-hmm. find into the book writing stage.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about a little uh, about the resources and and what you found because oftentimes when you look at certain immigration stories, particularly immigration stories from the quote unquote undesirable countries that the 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 Canadian yeah. government identified. We, the were those, we were those, yeah. 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 So, uh, and, and somewhat coincidentally, earlier this week there was the hundredth anniversary, the unveiling of a plaque for the Chinese Exclusion Act as well. Right. Uh, so, so a lot of Chi- people in the Chinese Canadian community have similar experiences, not being able yeah. to to trace yeah. their uh, family lineage because of similar policies. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. what is that struggle like to try to find things when the when the individuals who were trying to come here weren't welcome? And so what are some of those threads that you have to pull to try to find material?
1: So my, you know, it'd be interesting to hear from other communities. Maybe you'll say uh, you've heard stories on on this kind of front from other communities. Those two archival files that I found were associated with very important organizations in uh, Canada in the early 30s called the Jewish Immigrant Aid Society. I hope I've said that correctly. Their paper files were preserved Pretty uh, impressively, I would say, although, of course, you never know what what got cast aside or what got sent away. So the files all have this kind of mystery behind them. But the the Jewish Immigrant Aid Society then is the saving grace um, and whether other communities had organizations like that. So when my grandfather started out in 32, trying to see how he could bring his wife and his children after him, that's who he began to write to. Those letters are preserved. The the copies of the letters they typed in Yiddish back to him are somewhat preserved. And then if you go off to the National Archives in Wellington, so on Wellington, so maybe not so far from where you're sitting, yep. the immigration branch has an overwhelming documentation, unfortunately, most of it on microfiche. Uh-huh. So
0: Oof, you're not dealing with bad. nice paper
1: documents, and you're not looking at digitizations that are scanned. You're rolling through this microfiche, and that's such a hit and miss process. But I, I did do it two or three times, to- three, three visits to the National Archives. So you have the, you have Gaius, you have that, then you have the whole pile of everything else that you do that <laughs> kind of buttresses it all, and that's that's a kind of an impossible story to tell.
0: Yeah, and how do you make sense of it? Because you mentioned that wife and kids. He was hoping that he could bring them to Canada as well. But one of the ways he gets into the country is by lying and saying that he's single. So how do you know, uh, in this case, obviously family connection, but in general, because people lied about their personal circumstances in order to get in, how trustworthy are some of the uh, the official documents within the the government records, like the immigration office, knowing that people were not what we basically lying so that they could get in in the hopes that they could bring other people, their families later.
1: Well, you know, that's so, that's such an interesting question. And, you know, this, I, I, so this is the one flaw in his activity. You could say the lie, because once you're here and you want to bring your family over, they can tell you, well, you lied to us. And mm-hmm. based on that, you could certainly be deported. Never seemed that he was in danger of being deported for that. But lots of other people did get deported in that in the early thirties. And then the 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 letters that I have both in his file and in these range of other places, sometimes they're from immigration commissioners. So the civil service, and this is something that I don't know as much about in contemporary terms, but they really write detailed, outlined responses, typewritten. Uh, telling the Jewish immigra- immigration people why my grandfather's not going to get in, he's not going to get his family in. And when they do that, they kind of behave in a law- law- lawyerly fashion. They-, they supply you with an amazing amount of um, detail, and you get the tone. So I do some work on that in the book in terms of how these letters ring in our ears as it's you know it's a branch of the Canadian authority telling Uh, him first in Dysart, Saskatchewan, and then later down south in Hirsch, uh, for all the different reasons. You have to cut it out. This file's not going to succeed. But then because he proceeded beyond the civil service to the elected officials, those people's letters are not so bureaucratically brutal. And they, in interesting ways, and I don't know if you'd see it today, I mean, they open possibilities. They suggest, I'm thinking of one MP who writes back, I'll talk to the minister, he got a lawyer involved, that lawyer talked to the minister for immigration, and there was a correspondence there. So the answer to your question is kind of multiple, and you sort of, I was lucky I had any, any number of these different kind of discussions going on. The thing that is unclear towards the end of the book, so I can't absolutely resolve which keys get turned near, near the late stage. But you can sure sense and the documents are included in the book for people to see uh, when an MP or a minister is kind of inclined to say we could ease up on this front. So you get these different levels of authority having different tones and different ways of responding.
0: It's really interesting. Yeah. And, and how much is language involved in this? Because you mentioned the letters with the Jewish Aid Society were in Yiddish and yeah. then i would imagine all the communication with the federal government was in english, english. so yeah. what do you get a sense in the the linguistics like my initial thought there would be maybe part of what the jewish aid society is doing is working in yiddish so that if letters are seen people in the government might not understand them well, and they, like well, there's there's almost like a privacy to it
1: well you're right and whether i mean whether this was conscious or not i think it was a very suitable kind of a pattern in the sense that there would be this, you know, fairly substantial correspondence, as there was in our case, in Yiddish. And then the uh, figures, say, in Winnipeg or in Montreal, who have contacts in Ottawa, sometimes all the way up to the immigration minister, they show up in Ottawa. So they do write letters to them, and they do make personal visits, and they they do these things repeatedly. So I think this is an element of the times that is probably entirely fallen away that this is a kind of a this is is an underground low-key networking project on the part of these immigration aid people who are well connected and they don't talk about they they also don't inform my grandfather much about what it is they're up to that that also wouldn't serve their purposes so uh you're right that this leaves a certain amount of what's going on unspoken in the the letters and then things will kind of pop and then you'll realize oh something turned
0: Sure. Yeah. yeah, the the slow churn of the bureaucratic system yeah. uh, that, that we yeah. have. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, can you give us a sense of? I, I think everyone listening to this will will know that certainly there were discriminatory policies against. Uh, as, as we said earlier, undesirable nations or undesirable peoples uh, coming yeah. to Canada, uh, yes. but in particular the the case of your grandfather, some of the obstacles that he was pushing against uh, once he arrived in Canada. What what were some of the specific things that he had to do, not only to try to bring the family here, but really just to be able to stay and work and survive. So that the latter worked
1: out well for him, and this has to do with his particular competencies, which he brought with him from Poland. And though he was born in a small place, he was educated in a larger place and then uh, was an assistant to a Polish army of, officer in Warsaw. And in the process of that experience developed a pretty good um, literacy, and it's all in a language that's not going to be too applicable in broader terms in Canada but when he arrives here he's a letter writer of a very high order uh, and when I looked at other files like his there's any not you you go to these Jaius uh, archives and maybe you're not supposed to but you can pull all the other guys who are trying different things and he's kind of distinctive in terms of his assertiveness his rhetoric number of letters okay. so this is this is something that uh, you know people ask when they uh, talk to me about the book. You know what does it say about this personality? And of course, I didn't know him beyond age of two, so I don't really know what to say about it. But um, it does, uh, and I, I harp on it a bit in the book, or I, uh, I use it as my refrain. I mean, he's not going to take no for an answer. Mm-hmm. And if he heard none is too many, he he would have dispensed with that idea. And it, of course, it wasn't in play at the time. So that's the, So maybe that's a bit... Uh, There's a broad way of answering your question in terms of competencies, but uh, something unusual going on with him. And then as you you say, barriers, the bottom line is the immigration regulations were drawn up to keep Jews out. Uh, And when he came in 1930, there was the willingness to allow single men, which was the cause of the lie. He must have been informed of that by uh, a brother who was already in Vancouver. Just go ahead and tell them you're single. I mean that that move is pretty. That's pretty dramatic. Uh,
0: yep.
1: And then the I, idea that you would trust, I'll work it out later. I mean that's that's so the need to leave must have been very strong at that point.
0: Well, um, uh, well, if I could just sort of jump in on that, because you know, yeah. one of the things like coming from Poland in the 1930s, particularly once you get mid late 1930s, yes. the situation there. There would have been, I would imagine, a sense of urgency to get out of Poland and then once he's out to get the rest of the family out of Poland as well.
1: Yeah, he he surely ha- has that motivating him, although the quirk is that if we could can't show pictures, you have to go get the book. I mean, inside are some family photos of his family left behind in the early 30s and they really look good. I mean, my people were not poor and they were well-rooted, and they look Polish, and they're, they're, they look right. Uh, and I think my grandmother, when she finally had to leave in 35, was somewhat shocked that it was actually going to happen. So mm. there was this kind of divide. I mean, surely he understood what he was pursuing. But um, family life and, and things in Poland weren't terrible. The thing that was developing at the point at which my grandmother left well, there, I tell you the end of the book. I'm not supposed to do that. Um, were things like uh, uh, like we ha- like they had here in Quebec, don't buy from Jews, so that little businesses were finding it really hard to get by because customers you were used to uh, seeing every day stopped coming in. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly by the time she left, there was the rise of a very serious nationalist, anti-Semitic party in Poland, But when my grandfather left in 30, that wasn't so dramatic and his mindset would would have been a little bit uh, more mysterious to to figure out in 1930.
0: Well, to to that end, how do you feel his experience is shaped not only by certainly government policy, but then the reaction of individuals? You mentioned that there were policies or, or, or things of people not wanting to shop in Jewish stores, for instance. What is the connection that you see or found potentially between what governments put forth and calling people undesirable or nations undesirable versus how people are treated on the street, walking up and down in businesses yeah. every day by the the general that's population?
1: Neat. I mean, that's neat. So I'm an odd, I'm a, I'm idiosyncratic on that front. So they were doing the back cover for this book, and the publisher did all things well. I have no no complaints, but they were sort of hammering the (laughs) anti-Semitism theme. And, of course, that underlies what I'm talking and writing about and his dilemmas, of course. Uh, And yet, what developed in Saskatchewan for him on the ground and then what developed for my family later isn't isn't a story of of that, anti-Semitism per se. And also, it's it's not a Holocaust story. And I don't think the word's in the book. So... I I really did pursue this kind of on a, like a really flat on the ground level, in terms of immediate experience. And I would say that, you asked the question really concretely, like once he's in Saskatchewan, he's doing things in in kind of small Jewish village life uh, kind of style, but it's a whole checkerboard of ethnic communities, and they all have the same kind of challenges. The prairies are kind of unusual on this front. Uh, It's a bit of an undertold story, I think. So what he's struggling with is a kind of an entrenched anti-Jewish attitude in the government authority, Mm -hmm. which he also was able to break down and, and bypass. But it was not something that he, I don't think he would have encountered it on the ground. No. Maybe I'm being romantic and overly positive, but it's not my impression.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, 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 it is interesting. So, you know, I, I've spent a couple of years in Regina. I, I did research uh, for a professor. Mm-hmm. I've, I've read essentially every issue of the Moose Jaw Times between 1929 and 1938, okay. roughly. Okay. That's, uh, that's now, so, so I have a, a bit of a knowledge or a bit of a background in it. And one of the things that comes through in the newspapers were announcements for meetings of the Klan and the Orange Order uh, through the 1930s, right? So those were uh, were prominent parts of life in Saskatchewan at this time. But at the same time, there were also very strong community programs or community groups for Chinese uh, immigrants, for Eastern European immigrants on the prairie. Mm -hmm. So those two things kind of worked slightly hand in hand. So there would have been opportunities for him to find... Members of a Polish community, an Eastern European community, Definitely. Jewish community, to come out Definitely. there. So, how much of what you found was related to that? Like, what what communities he was finding on the ground?
1: Well, so first, the clan is neat. So, the clan does pop up uh, in my in my period. So, I really do limit myself in the book to his years, although there's some slight detailing prior to 1930. But I'm really <laughs> Excuse me, thirty to thirty-five, um, and you're you're dead on that. The Klan had a resurgence in Saskatchewan, which was American motivated. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an echo of certain things going on in Canada right now, um, in terms of American politics and social activities influencing us. But from what I could tell, the Klan was not in Saskatchewan was not interested in Jews. They maybe you saw this. They they were very anti-Catholic and mm-hmm. they were anti-French. Uh, And it was, you know, it was about schools and this kind of feeling of being, having things imposed on you by way of the federal government. These are stories we're still hearing. And they were so busy doing that, but they were also pursuing what they thought of as, how did they term it? Well, anyways, um, quote, in quotes, white people, white women should not be hired by Chinese businesses. They had a big uh, run with that. But they seemed to busy themselves with that stuff not worry about the Jews, if I've got this correct, and then it evaporated rather quickly. It, it wasn't a long-lasting period. And the quirk, the quirk is that one of the players in his uh, writing activities was an MP called Turnbull, who may have played a role in the outcome of the story. And from what I can tell, he was a member of the clan. Mm-hmm. So it was actually a touchpoint, uh, and my grandfather, of course, wouldn't have known this, so, you know, you're sort of teasing out how this stuff operated in prairies, Canada, late 20s, early 30s. It's pretty colorful and not nice, but it didn't seem to um, undermine his efforts uh, as we might have thought it did. Now, your question went another direction beyond the clan. Where, where, did, where did it go after that? Just
0: community. Like, where is he finding his right. communities right. and the, the people who he's spending time with while he's out yeah. there? So
1: that's really important. He's in really small places. Hmm. And you have to go to the map and look for Capel Valley, and the first place is up near there. And then you have to go down to the American border and look for Estevan, and there's a that's the little place, Hirsch, is down near there. So this is really like the archetype of Canadian rural village life, in which, as you've said, You know, all the different ethnic groups are making their way in these different far-flung corners. And little groups of ethnics, you start to list them, you'll you'll make a long list, are in all these places. So it gives a flavor for a kind of an ethnic mix that's very specific, especially to Saskatchewan, a little bit uh, true also in the rest of the prairies. Uh, And so different... (laughs) Uh, small town life uh, that that would be my way of thinking about uh, what what he's seeing um, and then there's this peculiar fact that he's living in places where he's sort of in the second place especially it's like an all Jewish community Ooh. it's kind of weird uh, that's a colony down near the uh, southern uh, border and uh, they, you know they would have traded with other people and the train came through and you, you name it but uh, everyone in Hirsch was Jewish Okay.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, So within that uh, community, within the Jewish community of Hirsch that he's living in, the other reality of the 1930s, of course, the economic uh, and the drought uh, across the prairies in in the 1930s. So how does the economic situation influence uh, the other challenges that uh, he and members of the Jewish community are facing through this period?
1: I mean, it couldn't have been worse, you'd have to say. Because he arrives in 30 with the onset of the depression, and the droughts hit a little before that, and they kind of don't let up for the, the rest of the decade. So the farmers that he's the community kind of all-purpose religious guy for, they're going through the worst challenges that a farmer can go through. Uh, and they are starting to leave. But I I think the depeopling of these places, uh, and it really is substantial ultimately, isn't quite as dramatic as it will become after he so he's in Dysart, then he's in Hirsch. Uh after 35, my book stops. After that, I think the depeopling, because of the impact of those of depression and drought, uh, really, really made an impact, and young people were leaving to go to school, and the idea of Maintaining these far-flung communities, kind of ran its course uh, uh, on the Jewish front, and all these little far-flung places with four, sixteen, eight, a hundred, they, they 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 lose those, they lose that uh, flavor, that color.
0: Yeah. And it, it kind of mirrors a lot of what's happening across the prairies, just generally with people moving more towards urban centers Absolutely. Uh, and through the through the 1930s. And it's really continued uh, to today. And and what do you think the loss of that community was uh, as people are leaving it? Because if it's a place where people are coming together uh, with the, sh- the shared religion, a shared background, mm-hmm. a shared culture, as those things start to get lost, what do you think the impact would have been on members of that community?
1: Well, the ones that, <clears throat> now it's getting late, but the ones that I did meet who had grown up in those places had very nice memories of them, even though it could have been depression time and other kinds of things were very challenging for their families. Um it's hard it's a hard one like like probably like you I'm a city guy I've never lived in a very small place I can't really relate to the both the challenges and the kind of the pleasures of it but the only thing I could say is that his letters never seem to signal that he's trying to get out of these places hmm. he seems somehow to have you know he's got a problem that is he left his wife and his two children behind but he's he's landed in these places and he's got the role that he's playing he's ritually slaughtering and he's leading religious services he's teaching and he's marrying and he's burying and it just seems to kind of be a committed new role that he's playing and there's never a note that can you get me out of this place can i right. can i get somewhere better so um but i mean that's the read i have of what he uh, has in, in, in his correspondence
0: well it, one of these things that it's hard to relate i mean my grandfather when he was a kid came from scotland and we've tried to do some research as to what the situation was when the family came over and maybe it's just me but i find it always difficult to fathom and i've had the opportunity to live in different places during my life but the idea of picking up going across the ocean uh, to somewhere else at a time where communication is very difficult like the yeah. the guts that that takes to a certain extent, but it also gives an indication of what they're leaving, what the situation was. So can you give us a sense of some of the motivation behind what, what your grandfather was doing when he left Poland to come here?
1: Two anecdotes that I tell at the beginning of the book, and they reflect personal encounters that he had. And these traveled in our family lore, and in one case, they're sitting in the suka, which is you know the little booth that you sit in on a certain holiday, and it's outside. Um, and in that little village where they lived, it was near the river, probably. And somebody throws a rock in, and the 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 line that he expressed to his family was, "Can't live with these people anymore." Anyways, that's the family lore for that. The other one was that, um, so I'm a little too rosy when I I tell his experience in 1930. Uh, A kid apparently had called across the road, you know, some version of your dirty Jew. And my grandfather didn't want to take it. He went after the kid. The kid went home, told his dad. The dad, I don't know who this character was, uh, supplied some kind of threat. So... These, these don't seem terribly dramatic, but I guess they're the kind of things that they can, if you have a kernel of urge, and he did have three siblings who had already left. Mm. So there's already that pattern in these small places in, in Poland of the young people leaving. And uh, my book doesn't try to recover exactly all of that, because that's a big historical picture. But the two anecdotes are what I can supply regarding my grandfather. And I do believe that um, it was one of those things in a family, because all the rest of his family stayed behind and got murdered, um, besides the three that left ahead of him. Uh, I think they thought he was nuts. You know, they thought, right. what's, why, what's wrong with you? Everything here is good for us. We're long established. You have new family. Why would you tear it up? I think that there was this kind of... It was the strain? It, it wasn't the typical uh, emigres fleeing. This word right. you often—I think that word is a fake word. I, mm. I often. you know, you're fleeing if you got a pogrom in your backyard and people in your family got murdered. But in our case, that was not the case. So uh, he was not fleeing, but his mindset had shifted. Right, and yeah. I, I, I can only imagine that my way I, I, what I can work with are those two anecdotes,
0: right? Yeah. And it's interesting too, because the, the play that just won best Tony uh, Leo Polstad, it's about, yeah. Yeah. So I had the opportunity to see it as well. And you see a similar thing where people are members of the family are saying, this is getting bad. This is going to get worse. And others don't want to believe it. And that kind of seems similar to what you're saying about some of what you know about, the family yeah. members who stayed in Poland, just we have a good thing, <clears throat> everything's going to be fine. Like, and, and you want to believe that. For like, yeah. I'm sitting there watching the play, and as people as they're saying this is yeah. going to be okay, yeah. I have, of course, know where it's going, but I want to believe them, right? Because you want yeah. that for those people, you want them yeah. to be safe and yeah. happy and healthy. Like, you want yeah. that.
1: And the play's so neat in its way of starting out, like the set is so golden and so rich. Yeah. And then by the end their their interiors are so grey and so mm-hmm. so grubby and depressing. Yeah. So it really does capture the feeling of oh, that's what's happened. Uh but both in my book's case and the and the Leopoldstadt's case, it's a good one to 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 note that you don't know, you didn't know. Mm-hmm. And at certain points, you maybe even have sh- shouldn't have felt great danger. And then it's a quirk in personality and also maybe the lead of the siblings ahead of them and the advice they were offering, in his case, that allows the break. And the break is, is as you say, so dramatic and could end terribly. And
0: So you mentioned... Uh, Irving Abella, you mentioned None Is Too Many as being yeah. really the foundational book for uh, Jewish immigration to Canada. How do you fit in this story within that Abella narrative? And, and because it is so strong, like, like where does uh, your grandfather's story fit in within the broader None Is Too Many uh, structure that we have where- of Jewish Canadian history?
1: So it's really important, and it was a challenge as I was finishing things and say, as we were deciding what to put on the back of the book, and at at what point in the book do I mention the phrase, none is too many. Um, I argue that my, my the reality of my narrative is that I am outside that narrative. Uh, the thing that's shared between the first five years of the 30s and what happens after 35 under the liberals and king are these regulations that restrict the entrance of undesirable, non-preferred emigrants. That's a shared uh, trajectory over the decade. But the first five years and the whole story that I have to tell is not the King period. It's Bennett and it's conservative. And in Saskatchewan at the time, there was a couple of changes in the provincial government. So he mostly had conservative, but he he did have liberal a, a little bit too. So the thing that is shared is the civil servants because they keep their jobs regardless of who's in power. But the thing that changes is all the elected authority. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then in that way, in his locale, there's a lawyer who's kind of a conservative bag man, well connected in Regina, and then also makes some visits to uh, Ottawa. So uh, my feeling is that they, they have a subtitle in, in their book, None Is Too Many, and it's uh, don't have it in front of me, but the years they, they supply are 33 to 48. But I really do think that subtitle should have been 35 to 48. Because if you look in the index of None Is Too Many, Bennett's not there, or twice. Right. And a couple of other really key figures from my narrative are, are hardly there, if at all. So I, I think they're complementary, but I was lucky. I didn't have to make a really big play for saying, okay, I'm enmeshed, I'm entangled with the whole nonist. I can actually, a few times in the book, say, I think we're dealing with a different territory here. Mm, and then yeah. I work with uh, the elected government. I work with the reality of a conservative government. The fact that they were not beholden to Quebec lieutenants, as they like to say about King, so that there was always someone whispering in his ear, if you let in Jews, our Quebec uh, MPs will not get reelected. This kind of thing was not operating under Bennett. Right. So you have this kind of, it's like a different scene, different scene, sure. I say.
0: Yeah. And and I think the other obvious main difference uh, is that this is a story that is personal to a certain extent, uh, as you said at the start, that uh, th- that part of it is comes through as well. So how how was this process for you and your family? Was it a cathartic process? Was it, you know, obviously learning family history is very interesting, but, but just on that personal side, what was that personal journey about researching and writing this? Well, that's funny
1: on many fronts because, um, okay, so we all had this story, but we knew about twelve percent of it, if that. (laughs) Uh, Every everyone I've, you know, uh, the book's gone to them, and they they show me pictures of themselves reading it. They're getting such a great kick out of it because there's so much. I never knew this. I I, none of this was in play. Uh, our my grandfather, the father of my uncles, did not tell this story as he might have, or could have, or should have. It 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 didn't exist in our in our um, family discussions. And then there were certain colonels that we had heard about. So someone I should mention who was Ottawa based. This is Lillian Freeman. She was a very important activist and sort of uh, well connected organizer. <laughs> friend of prime ministers, Uh, she could wipe the floor with these immigration commissioners. And we knew that she played a role. So you could say in our family lore, there was this love affair with Lillian Freeman. So I was able to really unearth through what uh, uh, hangs around in archives about her. She's not a well-researched figure for her influence at the time. And she kind of came into view and uh, we we understood her better. So these these things are, you know, they're they're fun. The the way uh knowledge was so incomplete, uh, to some degree it remains slightly incomplete, but you know, it really fills out. So let me just say one last thing. In the process of writing it, my mom died, so she's in play in the narrative a little bit, uh, and her younger brother, who is not in play here but who helped me work on it because he had um great translating skills for my grandfather's Yiddish letters in script. I can translate typeset Yiddish, but handwriting was tough. He got COVID and died. So shortly before this book arrived, uh, I really would have been, you know, he, it was his book to some degree. His, mm. He was so engaged with it, uh, his father's story. So that was a missed opportunity. Yeah. And then what remains is their older brother, uh, and that man is is enjoying it. So there's a there's a lot of angles on on right. the thing that you ask about.
0: Ah, uh, terrific! And uh, you know, we would certainly encourage everybody to go check it out. Uh, there's a lot in there, uh, both personal story, but speaks to broader societal questions and issues at the time. So it's who gets in an immigration story. Uh, Norm, if people want to go pick up a copy of it, or Keep up with some of your other work because you have other uh, wonderful books out there available as well what's the best way for folks to uh, keep up with everything you got going on
1: yeah so i mean we all know that in canada they're all challenges for booksellers but um, i mean i've had good support from mcnally robinson out west and in calgary there's a bookstore called shelf life and indigo certainly is going to get it to you maybe sometimes they're not going to have it on the shelf which I, i I think they should have, but uh, the order is straightforward there and and fast. So those are kind of good, easy routes, I would say. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And uh, we will also link down below uh, to the uh, University of Regina uh, press site. Uh, So you can check that out as well as down in the show notes. Uh, So again, who gets in an immigration story? Uh, Norm Raven, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: thanks a lot. Great questions.
0: So there you have it, my chat with Norm Raven. I thank him for his time. And again, the book is Who Gets In? An Immigration Story. And with that, here's today's historical headline of the week, which comes from Maclean's by Jadine Gan: A look inside the new Chinese Canadian Museum in Vancouver's Chinatown. This is a new museum and the only one dedicated to Chinese Canadian stories. The museum opened back last Saturday on July the 1st, which was the 100th anniversary of the 1923 Chinese Immigration Act. made reference to that in the show. There is a Historic Sites and Monuments Board of Canada designation and plaque that was unveiled just before Canada Day to mark that anniversary, to mark that policy. And as part of remembering and sharing that story, the opening exhibit within this museum is called The Paper Trail to the 1923 Chinese Exclusion Act, which looks at the documentation used to administer the policy for the 24 years that it was in place. So the article itself is really an overview of what's in the museum, while at the same time highlighting its importance, the power of memory, and why it is significant for us to look back in our history and remember it in its totality so i'm based in ottawa i have not been in vancouver in the last week i have not had a chance to head out to the museum but congratulations to everybody involved in the construction the building the curating of the chinese canadian museum out there in vancouver certainly those projects take a lot of work a lot of effort a lot of time, a lot of patience. So congratulations to everybody out there, and I look forward to the next chance I have to head out to Vancouver to check it out. But in the interim, I very much enjoyed reading all about it in McLean's. Jadine Gann, a look inside the new Chinese-Canadian museum in Vancouver's Chinatown, today's historical headline of the week. And with that, I will say thank you so much for listening, everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Likes, ratings, comments—that really helps us, grows the show. Other people find us, share word. Uh, really enjoying doing this new format from what the history slam was. Hope you're enjoying it as well. And if you are, please do spread the word. Really does help us out. And of course, if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, what's oldest news at gmail.com and as always head on over to activehistory.ca for our past episodes and some of the great written content over there so i will thank you so much for listening and i'll talk to you again next week for more it's old as news